Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a master class by Columbia Professor Joanne Bainey on communications for organizations. Professor Bainey teaches strategic communications at both SEPA and the Columbia Business School and is the author of The Guide to Interpersonal Communications, a book published by Prentice Hall. She'll be talking today about some of the critical elements of good communication strategies, including conducting an audience analysis and identifying communications objectives. Bon dia. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be here with you today. We're going to be doing a lot of different um, things today. Uh, we're going to talk about communication strategy. As we move into the afternoon, we're going to do an exercise on managing difficult questions. In that exercise, each of you will have a chance to stand up and respond to a series of challenging questions that will be crafted specifically for you by your colleagues. So I'm going to get into the details of how we will manage that logistically. But before I do that, uh, in order for that to happen, for everyone to have enough time to stand up and really have a moment of, uh, uh, to respond to questions and you know, really enjoy the, uh, the experience of that challenge, we have to divide the group into two. And for, for that to happen, I am very uh, proud to introduce you to my colleague, Scott Gardner. Scott is someone that has worked with me here at SEPA. He uh, works with me on the course that I teach here in the Executive MPA program. He also has a great deal of experience working at the Executive Education program at Columbia. And something that will come to bear in some of the material that we'll talk about today, he has an ancillary background as a, an actor and a performer here in New York and actually across the country. So some of the material that we'll talk about today, which Scott will inform us from his own experience, is when you speak in front of an audience, what are some of the stagecraft elements, the delivery skills that go into that experience? So Scott's going to share some of, uh, some of his perspective on that with us as we go into the material for today. How's that sound? Great. Very good. All right, very good. So first thing is uh, there's a little bit of business that has to happen, and that is that your information sheets that you filled out, if you wouldn't mind passing those back to Scott, he is going to um, use them to put you into small groups. And I'll get into the logistics a little later about what that is going to mean for you in terms of reading questions and responding to questions. But the, uh, the essence of that is that you will be in a group of four people, and the people in your group will be writing questions for you, and you'll be writing questions for, the, for those other people. So we'll get into those details later, because it's too soon for it. But he's going to go ahead and, uh, and take care of uh, putting, putting you into those groups and making sure that the, the sheets are available for you as you go forward. OK? All right, good. So um, I'd like to begin this morning by talking about communication strategy. And communication strategy is, if, if I can think of anything that is really foundational for all communication, it would be what we'll talk about this morning. So communication strategy is, the, uh, is, is what you do before you actually enter into any communication. You might say high stakes communication of any kind or even a low stakes one. It is essential for preparing for a presentation preparing for an interview, preparing for a meeting, preparing to write a memo, preparing to write an email uh, for a conversation. 
any, really anything that you can think of, communication strategy should be the component that precedes the actual application, the actual moment of communicating. So when I talk about this today, much of what I'll refer to will be face-to-face communications. So there'll be a presentation or an interview or maybe a meeting. But I want you to keep in mind that even if it isn't a face-to-face communication, even if it is a written communication like an email or putting together a document, the same principles of strategy apply. Okay? Uh, I'll share with you the, the framework for the material that we'll talk about today. This framework was very thoughtfully crafted by myself and my business partner uh, to, to be memorable. It's, um, this is something that's called a mnemonic. I don't know if you've heard that word before. But mnemonic is so that it sticks in your head and thereby is then accessible to you to, uh, you know, to apply easily. So this mnemonic is specifically crafted so that you will be able, it'll be able to stick in your head. There is a lot of material available regarding persuasion and influence and communication strategy. And she and I have packaged it in this way so that you're able to remember it well. The three components communication strategy are to analyze your audience, really think about who are the people that you're speaking to, what do they care about, what do they know, how you can persuade and influence them. So it's an enormous amount of uh, information about your knowing your audience. Second is to identify your intent, and that is to really be very clear about what you, what you want to achieve, what your objective is. What will, what will a successful outcome for whatever you're communicating? What will it look like? What will it sound like? What will it feel like? What is your, your goal? Intent. And then lastly, making messages memorable, making the most of your message. Now that you have done all of the thoughtful work that goes into analyzing an audience and thinking about your intent, how do you make sure that in the sea of information that we're all barraged by, how do you make sure that your message is elevated and remembered? How do you make sure that your message is uh, bumped up to, uh, to a level where it is um, plucked out of the wide variety of information that we're all, um, you know, we're inundated by information nowadays more than ever. So those are the three now, I, I want you to know that in order to kind of come up with this framework, uh, Lynn and I, my business partner and I, read like thousands of books. And we, you know, we said, God, there's a lot of information about communication strategy. How can we package it and distill it so that somebody can kind of tick off what the component parts and systematically uh, make sure they cover all of the, uh, say, cover the bases? Of, uh, of strategy. Sound good? All right, good. So for the very first part of this, I have an easy job for you. And this job is uh, just for you to take a moment and listen. Just take a moment and listen. Frog, fork, pebble, Dirt, bird, spoon, bridge, 
stone, leaf, plate, basket, reciprocation. Uh, so first I'd like to share with you something called the audience attention curve. And this is, there we go, okay. So this is a, a way of representing typically how people pay attention to information, how people listen, and consequently what they tend to retain. And this attention curve is true regardless of the length of any, length of any presentation. You naturally have your audience's attention at the beginning and the end. You naturally have it. So it's a really good place for you to put your main points, to tell them what you're going to tell them, here you tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Have you ever heard that adage before? That it's a, it's a public speaking adage by a, an American writer who was actually ahead of his time in so many ways, American writer named Mark Twain. You may have heard of Mark Twain. Uh, he was a brain scientist even before we knew that he was a brain scientist. He knew how people listened. And his public speaking adage, which is, a, it's a, he's a humorist as well, is tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. <laughs> uh, and that is to take advantage of this phenomenon. So that being said, let me ask you, how many of you, take a look at your list, how many of you have frog or snake on your list? Frog or snake on your list? Frog or snake, is it everybody? So look at this, 100%. Why do you have it on your list? Because they were first and last. And I, I, yes, and I showed you the picture of frog. How many of you have frog? Look at that. Okay, so what's the conclusion from that? You have frog of this enormous list. It's primacy recent, primacy for the first thing, but also that visual image. That visual image. And that is something that I want to talk about a little later, but it's so powerful that when we listen, we don't just listen with our ears. We listen with our eyes. And in fact, the non the nonverbal or the visual components are in most cases, far more powerful, more powerful than what we hear. So you all had frog. Isn't that wild? I mean, there are like 40 words on that list, and you all had frog. How many of you have, uh, have cloth? No. Look, what if that was my main message? What if cloth was what I wanted you to remember? No one remembered it. And it's all because of where I, I put it, all because of the placement. And I added the visual bit. How many of you have snake? So again, I got about half of you with snake. This is, by the way, often forgotten, and that is that uh, the final thing you say, the conclusion, the very end cap, is a really powerful timing moment. So it's something you don't want to you know, let go. You don't want to waste it. And what I, uh, I want to encourage you not to do is when you deliver, you know, do a presentation or again, these are true for any kind of communication, a meeting, an interview, whatever it is, that very final thing that comes out of your mouth is going to be remembered. So don't, don't throw it away. Don't, be, don't say like, well, I guess that's it, right? Like, well, uh, okay, so um, thanks, <laughs> right? It's just so lame. So you want to take advantage of that moment. How many of you have uh, stream? 
have stream. So it's it's about about half of you, right? Have well, this is my my frog came back. People remember images. Um, how many of you have stream? About half of you. And why do you have stream? I repeated it. So another another lesson for uh, memory is that audiences remember things they hear more than once. Yes. Well, you know, one of the one of the lessons from doing a presentation, if you're going to be using visual aids is to take advantage of the impact of, a, of an actual like a visual image, a photograph, or a chart, or a diagram. Those are so much more powerful than just words. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Include a visual image. Uh, in this exercise, who should know that you are in the end of what we're talking? Is it good to tell people to finish presentation so they can pay attention. Yes, that's a really good strategy to give them a heads up that you're about to finish. So, uh, yeah, so, you know, as we finish up, right, that, then people, that, believe me, people are like, oh, God, I wasn't paying attention. I'm going to pay attention now. <laughs> so any of those cue words, and I call those flags, uh, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but you flag your audience's attention. You elevate it by saying, the most important thing is, Oops. or the critical thing is, Oops. yeah, exactly, right here. She's going to say something important now. So yeah, very good point. Uh, don't be afraid to say things more than once. If, if uh, you know, it's important for you that your audience remember a certain point, say it again. Repeat it. You could reinforce it in a variety of ways. You could reinforce it with a, a personal anecdote, with connecting it to a uh, current event with a personal, uh, you know, a story that relates to, again, what, you know, what might be happening in the moment. Uh, a statistic, an expert test, connected to something else if you want to repeat it and, don't, and maybe you don't want it to sound stale. How many of you had uh, the great Houdini on your list? Good. So this is, again, I'd say about a third of you, maybe a half of you. Why did you have the great Houdini? I said it was important. <laughs> And that's the example of flagging. That's, uh, that's so powerful that you, you, know, you vault something up if you give it that little preamble. If you remember nothing else, remember this, right? That's a flag. So you can have a verbal flag, like I just demonstrated, a visual flag, which is a visual aid that encapsulates whatever that critical point is. Ideally, it will be visual. Uh, you can have a vocal flag that is to change your voice in some way, either by speaking more loudly or more softly. You can have a nonverbal flag where you, you know, some kind of unusual gesture, right, or something that will just call someone's attention to that moment. So those are all flagging techniques. And then you may have remembered, those of you who remembered the great Houdini may have remembered it because it was different than anything else on the list. It refers to a specific person. It was a phrase, unlike the other generic nouns. And uh, the lesson for this is called the Houdini effect. But technically, it's called the von Restorf effect, because it was discovered by some guy named von Restorf. And his big discovery was, get ready for it, unusual things are remembered. 
so you know, like you know, hold hold the presses. Uh, like we all know that, but he put his name to it, the von Restorf effect, that uh, unusual things are remembered. So any time that you can ask your audience to engage in something that is unexpected, they'll remember that part. So those are the the lessons from from this. Uh, from this word list, and that is to think about what your audience is going to remember and take advantage of these relatively simple techniques so that your audience is focused on your key messages. And these techniques, again, we've talked about primacy recency, repetition, flagging, von Restorff, so that whatever you want to make sure is remembered by your audience is elevated through, through those techniques. How many of you tried to create in your mind an image of, or a picture so that you could, what were you thinking of? <laughs> what is it? Isabella, what were you, what image? I imagine like a park. A park. Yeah. Yes, there were a lot of words that were, picnic yes. park. Yes. yes, a lot of words that lent itself to that. Uh, table setting, which is the picnic thing. So I, um, I would have helped you remember many, many more if I had organized my material, right? And I didn't. I was very lazy. I just said it however I felt like saying it, any order I wanted to. So that put the onus on you to try to create some kind of a structure. And you, you know, you were desperate to do it, like oh, a picnic, uh, you know, animals, whatever. You tried to create that structure because that's how you were looking to make sense of it. So that's what what we all do is we look to kind of create some sense of information. And I didn't do that for you, so you were left to do that on your own. I would have helped you remember many, many more if I had created that structure. So if I had put all the animal words together, all the picnic words together, all of the you know, outdoor scene words together, if I had grouped or chunked those for you, you would have remembered many, many more. So that's part of the lesson also for, um, for memory for your audience is that you group or chunk information. By grouping it or chunking it, you help your audience remember more. Even better is to tell them what the chunks are going to be. So I would have made things so easy for you if I had said, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about animals. We're going to talk about a picnic. And then we're going to talk about an outdoor scene. If I had told you that ahead of time, and then if I had said, you know, um, ant, frog, dog, whatever, animals. Now that we're done talking about animals, let's talk about a picnic scene. Saucer, uh, cup, the uh, you know uh, branch, leaf. Told you all the things you might see at a picnic. So if I had grouped or chunked the information and then told you the chunks, transitioned from chunk to chunk, you would have remembered. You'd probably remember like thirty words, just because I would have packaged it for you in that way. So the packaging is not accidental, right? It has to be very intentional. And the more intentional you make it, and the more like targeted to your audience and their world and their, you know, their relevance, 
the likelier it is they're going to remember a lot more and actually get the sense of what you are looking to share. If you do that kind of and packaging, then you change the attention curve. Remember how it went like this? Now we have an attention curve that still has highs and lows, but it floats at a higher level. So you keep your audience's attention at a higher level. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's, uh, and again, it's pulling together a lot of these, you know, a lot of these techniques and uh, in, in one element, that is that you use primacy recency. You tell them what you're going to tell them. I'm going to talk about animals, a table setting, and a picnic, you know, picnic. You tell them, and then you package things within those chunks, and you transition from chunk to chunk. Now that we've talked about a, um, now that we've talked about a, uh, picnic, we're going to talk about animals. You transition that serves kind of as a flag. I'm talking about chunking because chunking is the word that is used by memory experts when they, when they um, describe how, people, how people's brains work and what they tend to remember. They actually use the, the word chunk. It's kind of a gross word. <laughs> but another way to think of it is buckets. So if you put things into buckets and then tell your audience what those buckets are, that's how people tend to remember information. And how this would look, how this would look in a presentation, this is what I'm going to share with you is a no-fail system for delivering a presentation. It will never fail you. There are lots of ways to do this, but this way will always work. It's not the only way, but it's a no-fail way of doing it. Oh, all presentations have to have an introduction. In the introduction, a couple of things are essential. One is you have to introduce yourself or have somebody introduce you. The first thing your audience wants to know is who the hell are you? You need to, you need to have some kind of a credibility moment there, whether you say it or somebody else says it. An introduction. The other thing that's important in the introduction is something that I call honoring the room. Honoring the room. And this is a lesson that I learned from General Stanley McChrystal of the uh, um, US Army, who uh, actually spoke to uh, a group that I worked with some time ago. And um, one of the things he shared is that you honor the room whenever you begin a conversation or a meeting or a presentation. That means that you let your audience know that you value their time and attention, and you value something that they have brought to the table. By doing that, you, you, uh, you kind of extend an olive, olive branch of um, kindness that engenders reciprocation. So it's just uh, you know, a ba basic compliment. And you compliment your audience, and they lean in just a little bit, because they feel good. So self-introduction, honor the room. Audience analysis, we're going to talk about identifying your intent, and we're going to talk about making messages memorable. Right? Those are the chunks. Now you go ahead and get into what I call the body of the presentation. This is the bulk of the presentation. The bulk of the presentation, you can see, has the buckets that we spoke about. You, you bucket the information. Um, bucketing is sometimes more challenging than you, you, know, than you might think. 
because you have to you have to create the structure, and it doesn't fall from the sky in any way. Like this aim strategy, it didn't fall from the sky that way. We had to come up with a way to think of uh, all the information that's available for persuasion and influence. What are the buckets they're going to like the best? They're going to hear the best. But you're absolutely right. There's an this is an artistic endeavor. It's uh, you have to really be open to you know the creative moment there. You're going to have to create it, and you might think about it and say this bucket makes no sense, and you may have to restructure the whole thing. Right? Think of it a whole new way. So in any case, you, you look to create those buckets that are going to resonate best with your audience. Share the buckets. Always remember to summarize and transition between. When you get to the end, you do a close. And here's where we apply the tell them what you told them. Right? You recap what the buckets are. So we've had a, you know, a great time this morning talking about tree parts. We've talked about animals, and we've talked about a picnic. You recap, right, what those, what those chunks are. And um, often at this moment in a presentation, a classic presentation style, is that you invite questions, right? And, uh, but, but we're going to talk about questions later on today, because it's a big part of what I do want to share with, with all of you and you know, Scott as well. Remember that um, when you go into Q&A, questions, that's Q&A is question and answer. Um, when you go into that part of a presentation, you, in a way, you kind of don't have as much, you don't have as much control, right? The audience is kind of now a co-author of the presentation. They're leading things and guiding you. You, don't, you have a lot of control in what you say, of course, which we will talk about. But you lose control of the sequence because the questions will then Man, you know, it'll be managed by the audience. So I want you to remember that the audience remembers best what they hear first and last. Right? The frog snake. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to finish on a question from the audience that isn't related to your main point. You may get a cranky comment or an unrelated story. Someone just wants to tell something that happened to them today. It doesn't really relate, but they feel like they have to share it. So that means that when you get to the final statement, you want to bring it back to what you want to share. Right? It could be a simple one-sentence thing, but you want to bring it back to what you, you want your audience to walk away with. Because they will walk away with that final sound bite. So own that sound bite. Don't give it up to the audience. Don't give it up to them. Now, I do a lot of work with the, uh, the New York City Police Department and the New York City Fire Department. And much, these are long-term uh, long programs I work on with them. And they typically develop, uh, they do a project and they develop a presentation for their commissioners. Goes in tight. Um, and the end of the program, they deliver these big presentations. And as you can imagine, much of their work is uh, relates to emergency circumstances and very dramatic events, you know, life-saving, um, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of emotion in what, the work that they do, because lives are on the line. So when I work with them, in this final moment, their very final moment, is I encourage them to put up a photograph of something that is going to reinforce whatever their recommendation is. 
So for example, it could be a photograph of our beautiful city. And they could make a final statement saying, you know, we're all in this together to, uh, to keep our city safe. And they show a skyline view of New York. Or they may show um, an image of a child who has been you know, rescued from a, a you know, terrible circumstance. And that they could leave that image of a happy child. My point being that this final moment is not one to be wasted. It's one to you know, take advantage of. And what, a very, what we learned from the frog, what's very, very powerful is a visual image. So if you can have that in your, you know, your final takeaway, it's a very, very effective thing to do. In, in the United States, and this may be true for Brazil, I will you know, ask you to kind of evaluate this. We're a very direct and explicit, uh, we're direct and explicit communicators. We like things to be right out there, uh, generally speaking, especially when audiences are you know, business audiences, organizational audiences, they're busy, they're results oriented. And so what I advocate in those circumstances is a direct approach. But you lead with your main points. Your audience is busy, they're results oriented, they're direct, they are uh, geared towards efficiency. So that is a cultural norm for the United States. In other cultures, this would be seen as obnoxious. It would be seen as rude and inappropriate. And in that case, the cultural filter would be instead to build information and conclude with recommendations. Now, for example, if I were um, doing a presentation in, uh, in Japan, I would probably follow this type of a format. Typically, in putting together a presentation or, uh, again, a document, uh, a meeting, whatever, you would actually do that part last. Because in order to know what your main messages are, the beginning and the ending, and the wickets that you want to hit, you have to think about what your intention is. And, that, and you have to know your intention before you decide what you want to reinforce. So you would usually do this part before the message part. Should I declare? Um, or state my intention to my audience? Right, that's a great question, uh, Julieta. In many cases, it is helpful to share your intention. For example, today, I shared my intention because it's a non-controversial intention and we're, it's for the greater good, right? If I were doing a sales call, if I were going to meet with a, uh, a client and I wanted to sell them a million dollars worth of widgets, whatever, it may be weird for me to say, hey, how you doing? As a result of this conversation, you're going to buy a million dollars worth of widgets, right? It may not hit them the right way. So you may not want to share your intention, depending on what the circumstances and what the audience is. So that's one of the filters that you would consider. What's going to feel right? What's going to feel appropriate? That's a really good question. Thank you. Let's talk about identifying your intent. This. Uh, do you recognize Cupid? This is Cupid with his arrow. And of course, the arrow, the intention of the arrow is to hit the right target, right? And that's what the, uh, your, your intention is with this part of strategy, is to make sure you're hitting the right target. What I hear from many executives is uh, one of the most disarming questions that I can ask somebody 
and it shouldn't be disarming, but it often is, is what's your goal? What is your goal? And often when I ask that question, I am met with a blank stare because many times people don't think about what their ultimate goal is. So this is a way to kind of develop what your ultimate goal is. What is your intention? I, I want to share with you my handy phrase, which I use when I identify my intentions for a communication. It always keeps me on track. Then I want to share with you an idea of how you develop what your targets might be. And then finally, talk about how you have to, usually you have to um, prioritize and get rid of some of your intentions. M most of us um, overreach in what our intentions are, given the time constraint we have. And so we have to be very careful about prioritizing what they are. But let's, um, let's go ahead and talk about these. So the phrase that I like to use, which is, keeps me on track, is a very, very simple one, but it's a very powerful one, is as a result of my presentation, or it could be as a result of this interview, as a result of this meeting, as a result of this conversation. So in other words, I have presentation here, but it could be any communication. So this is a, it's a blank line. You can fill in anything you want here. As a result of this presentation, the audience will. And this is the real powerful part here. The audience will. Why is this so critical? Because a communication objective or an intention, it should be about the change that you want to create in your audience. How is your audience going to be affected? How is your audience going to be different? Not, I will, what I will do. What will they do? What will they know? What will they feel? And this, again, is the big mind, uh, like mind bender, to get around the idea that it's not about what you intend. I mean, obviously it is about what you intend, but it's not about what you're going to do. It's going to be how the audience is going to be changed. Uh, so, for example, today, as a result of this talk, my classmates and the professor or, you know, my, the students in the uh, leading in a challenging century will, and thinking about how the audience will be affected. Um, thinking about, like, possible targets that you would go for. Uh, by the way, I, I want to share with you that in your handout, I specifically put, Laura, I have your handout, <laughs> sorry. I grabbed, I'll give it back. Um, but in your handout, I specifically wrote out all of this material for you because I wanted you to be able to take it away and be able to read it and absorb it. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that this is harder to, to kind of figure out than, uh, than it seems. It, it takes a little while to get it, you know, get it right. But in any case, uh, if you look at page eight, thank you, sorry. Um, if you look at page eight, you're going to see that there's a variety of different targets that you might reach for. And at the top of the page, it says, think, feel, and do. So many times, how will we measure what we want from an audience is, is through a change in their, in their action. 
So that would be a, a do. These are the easiest things to measure. Uh, as a result of my presentation, the audience will, and you know, you pick something that they're actually going to do. They will vote for my candidate. That would be an action that you'd be able to measure. They will do that. In many cases, that's the easiest one to measure. In many cases, however, you want to change people's feelings. And that's much harder to do. And it's harder to measure. How would you measure somebody's feelings, for example? How would you do it? Yeah, it's very hard to do. Mm -hmm. Measure someone's feelings. It's one of the things in the, in the course that I teach here at SIPA, uh, one of my objectives is to change people's feelings about their uh, skills as a presenter, right? I want them to feel more confident. So when I think about, well, how am I going to measure that, <laughs> right? How do you measure someone's feelings? It's hard to do. Nevertheless, we still want to, you know, still want to try to do it. So one of the things I do is I ask them to self-assess at the beginning of the semester their skills, pick a number on a scale, and then at the end of the semester, I ask them to self-assess, same scale, same scale, and hope that they've chosen a higher number. That's one thing to do. You can also measure, uh, you know, maybe not as specifically as, uh, as would be defensible in a you know, scientific experiment, but you can measure based on somebody's, um, the, way, the way they carry themselves, right? You can measure confidence. Does that make sense? Right. So uh, it's harder to measure feelings and attitudes, and yet in many cases it's exactly what we want to do. Um, I do. I think I told you I do some work with the police department. The police department recently sent out a memo to all of their very high-ranking um, within the department. It's called a deputy inspector and inspector. Very. It's very high. There are only like 200 of them in the whole department. By the way, the police department in New York City has 36,000 uniformed people. So it's an enormous department. So this is the very elite of the elite. And uh, they were talking about how they may achieve further promotion in this memo. And the memo did nothing to thank them, congratulate them, encourage them. It just said, you're here, here's how you get there. It was all very factual. And all of the, the inspectors I spoke to they, they felt hurt, right? They're, the truth of the matter is that these big hulking guys with you know, guns and, right, they're nine feet tall, they're like, I feel hurt, right? I don't feel, I don't feel thanked, I don't feel appreciated, I don't feel great, like I've, the department is grateful to me. How simple would it have been to include in that memo, we appreciate your service. We are you know, grateful for the years of, uh, you have provided to this department. We want to encourage you to uh, continue. And here's our recommendations for how you can move forward. How simple, right? And yet it was left out. So that, uh, that's an example of how you want people to feel, feel certain things, and through those feelings you um, increase your, uh, the motivation and the persuasive influence that you have. Does that make sense? Right. So, uh, so here we have um, Possible targets, and some of them are going to be actions, easy to measure somebody's action. 
somebody's feelings or attitudes, harder to measure and yet oftentimes so very, very powerful, and then what they think, what they know, as specifically as possible, what you want your audience to think or know. The more focused you are on establishing what those, uh, those are, those intentions are, the likelier it is that you will achieve them. So again, if I'm shooting for a target, I'm not going to hit the target unless I know where the target is, right? I have to, I have to, like, I have to find the target, I have to identify the target. If I know the target, then I have a good chance of, it, if, of hitting the target. If I don't know the target, like, I'm just like, you know, I'm aiming everywhere. So you have to figure out what your, where your target is, right? And it's, you know, sometimes hard to do. Um, when we start to identify all the different targets that we might, might want to achieve, again, my, in my experience, we often overreach. There's only so much you can accomplish with a single communication. So for example, if you're writing, uh, if, you're, if you're applying for a new job, you write a cover letter along with your resume, right? What's the objective of the cover letter? Present yourself. Show them your assets. Good. What's the intention of the cover letter? To get well. There now. There. There. You have the conundrum, because you will not get a job with a cover letter. What you hope to do is get an interview. Right. So as a result of this cover letter, the you know, recipient will call me for an interview. That's the objective of the cover letter. If you think about getting a job with a cover letter, you're overreaching. It won't happen, right? So that's the, there's a lot of like incremental uh, layering of intention that has to go into communication. And that's where whittling the list comes into play. Don't overreach. Don't try to do too much. You, it gets, it gets um, muddied. It gets all confused and muddied. This is, um, it's challenging material. Uh, and that's why I'm asking you, know, asking you to go ahead and, and make an effort to read these pages that are in here about identifying your intent. So the important thing for you is to think about as a result of whatever communication it is, as a result of this email, as a result of this meeting, as a result of this conversation, as a result of this uh, presentation, what do you, how do you want your audience to be changed? What do you want them to do, know, say, think, feel? And the more you can identify specifically how you want your audience to be changed, then you can uh, shape your presentation. So I have two, I have two sons. Um, my, uh, my sons are both at home with me this summer. They're, they're going to be moving away. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me. One is 22. He's going to be moving to Chicago. He just graduated from college. And um, he uh, has a job. And so he's moving off. And then my other son is 18. He's going to be going to college. He's going to be going to a school in Minneapolis. So they're both moving. And the house is in complete disarray. Complete mess. 
uh, stuff everywhere, boxes and, you know, all, you know, uh, topsy-turvy. So one of my objectives <laughs> is for them to clean their rooms. <laughs> no, <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I think about that, if I, if I take it from my perspective, as a result of this conversation, I will tell you to clean your room. How effective do you think that is? Right? No. So I have to think about what will, how will I get them to change their behavior <laughs> and put it in that perspective, right? As a result of this conversation, you <laughs> will clean your room. And then I have to be a little bit more thoughtful and clever about it, right? So it's not what I intend to do, it's how they are going to change their behavior, how they are going to be affected, how they are going to be different. Real world application. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.